Good morning, Mission View Church. Are you ready to dedicate children? It is so exciting to see the growth that God has given us biologically in this church. It is a very fruitful ministry and we're thankful for that. We already have an upcoming class of uh, many pregnant women for next year and so we're excited about what God's doing here. I wanted to explain just really briefly what child dedication is. Because some people, when we come from different backgrounds, it means different things. Some people grow up in a tradition where there's a child baptism or they, they have this special ceremony. Well, this is our ceremony. It's not a baptism. But what it is, is it's a parent dedication. It's the parent saying, we are making a promise that we are going to raise this child in the love and the admonition of God, that we are going to bring them to church, that we want them to understand what a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus is all about. And so that's what this is. It is a dedication. There's not like a special grace to the children other than it is the parents that are watching over the kids. It is a church family that says we are going to come alongside of you and that we are going to help you in this process because we are a family. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Stephanie Capus. She's going to come up and she's going to introduce the various people that are going to be dedicating their children. And as they, they're going to all be lining up here on stage. And then I am going to ask a series of questions to all the parents in terms of what they are committing them to. And for you parents, just know that all you have to do is say, we do. You have to say nothing else. So there's nothing to fear. All you have to do is say, we do. So I'm going to have Stephanie come up and for her to share right now. We had some visitors today. Yay. So that's exciting, but um, making sure everybody's settled. So good morning. Okay, so we're going to start with the Chandlers. Joey and Josh, and they have Miss Athena Lynn Chandler. Athena talks nonstop and is just as sassy as her three big sisters. Yep, just go to the middle. She often argues with them about who's the boss and picks up teenage lingo very quickly. We also have Liliana Rose. Lily is very much the baby of the family. She follows her mama around all day, constantly saying, Mama Mimi which is her word for hold me. But when dad gets home, no one else matters. Next we have the Davies, Sarah and Mark. Eliana Grace. Eliana is a feisty, strong-willed little girl with an affinity for electrical outlets and pulling people's hair. She also has a sweet laugh and a, and a smile that brightens any room. They are blessed to be her parents. Next we have Conrad August. This is the Garmeyers, Ben and Heather. Conrad loves bath time, all their farm animals, and he eats two eggs every morning. The Gonadicuses. This is Harper May, Whitney and Zach. Harper loves all animals, especially her two dogs, Blue and Mellow. She, she takes her job of feeding them very seriously. In fact, they think they may have gained a few extra pounds. The Haddads, Jake and Amy have Eli David. His name means high, ascended, or my God. He loves to smile, coo, especially in the mirror. 
Liam Michael Lyons. Tyler and Heather are his awesome parents. Liam was almost a July 4th baby, but missed the deadline by 58 minutes. He loves to cuddle, laugh, play, and listen to VeggieTales songs. He also loves to smile, except for when the camera's on him. Miss Faye, Sarah and Leanne have Miss Failer Nicole Marshall. Faye loves to be with people and be the center of attention. Mom calls her a little diva. She also once made Grandpa stand through an entire movie. The McGinnises, Noah Bryan. This is Brian and Allison. At six weeks old, Noah spends most of his days receiving checkups from his older sister, Ava. Callum, Abernathy, Pettigrew. This is Cassie and Joe. For this cutie, dogs don't scare him, but sneezes do. We have the Rochfords. Nick and Ashley have Paisley Ray. Paisley loves chatting with you and giggles while you sing and move her arms. She gets a ton of hugs from her older brother, whether she likes it or not. And we have the Taylors. Chad and Marissa have, you're going to have to forgive me, Maisie? Maisie, okay. I haven't met Maisie yet. Maisie has been able to hold her head up pretty much since the day she was born. So this is quite the crew this morning. It's awesome. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of the families. Uh, I'm gonna, I have five questions for you. And I expect that you're going to say we do for every one of them. But let's uh, think through each of these questions. So parents, uh, family members, do you receive this child with gratitude as God's gift to you and your family? Do you commit to creating a stable environment in which your child can mature? Do you commit to be a Christ follower, recognizing your children are more likely to follow God's path by the model they first observe in you? Do you commit to lead a faith-filled home that honors God in all your relationships and in the choices you make in spiritually growing your family? And do you commit to the hard work of parenting? I don't even have to ask you this because you already know it's hard work, but do you commit to the hard work of parenting that will require time, it will require lots of money, it will require prayer and absolute dependency upon the Lord? Stephanie's gonna pray and then I'm gonna pray for you guys. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for each and every one of the people standing before you today. Just want to lift up these children to you, lift up the parents to you and the families to you. We know that you have it. We know that if we just give it to you, Lord, that you will take it and you will bless us and you will bless them. Just ask that these families remember to always look to you, that no matter what, you are the one, the true, the steadfast, that you just hold them and just love on them and these kids as they grow up. We want to, we hope that the church can, can wrap our arms around them as you do to just remind them every day who you are. And dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that as a church, we can support each of these parents and their kids. Lord, we can come alongside of them, that we can be that encouragement. I thank you that there's 
just the, the, the family members, the biological family members that are here too to represent their support. Uh, thank you that there are friends here to support each of these family members and each of these children. And I do pray, Father, for each of these kids that each of these children would grow up loving Jesus, that they would understand what it means to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would give each parent the wisdom that they need. I pray, Father, for your strength to them. I pray that you'd give them the wisdom that they need. I pray for each one of these parents that you would give them the, just your knowledge and your determination to love their kids unconditionally and to show them Jesus at every phase of life. Lord, I pray that you give each parent patience because it's not easy raising children. But I pray, Father, also that you would give them so much joy, an increase of joy because of the blessing that you have given them. We recognize that all children are a sign of your blessing, and we receive that with great gratitude. Be with these parents, be with these children, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, parents, for coming up. I want you to know that it's not only the children on the West Coast that are thankful. Um, we have our very own preschool. Last week, we asked them the things that they were thankful for, and they are our Christian education staff are so cre uh, creative. They took this little uh, turkey and they put different feathers and the different things that the kids were thankful for. So I thought I would share what your children are thankful for. So let me start with Max. Where's Max's parents? Where are you guys? Okay, this is what Max is thankful for. First of all, he's thankful for Jesus. Okay, you can probably see up there. He's thankful for uh, Mama, Mama and Papa, Mommy, Daddy, Riley, Mason, Jetpacks, and Grandma and Grandpa. I'm sure he has like a jetpack in his closet somewhere, or he just has a vivid imagination. So then we have Athena. Athena is thankful for, first of all, the lion. I don't, it wasn't a lion, it was the lion. I'm not certain if you guys have one in your backyard, if it's a stuffed animal, but she's thankful for the lion. School, Daisy, Jesus, Jesus is in there. Miranda, Michaela, Bethany, Liliana, Mommy and Daddy, Elsa, Anna, and for pink. I think that's the color pink, not the artist pink. Okay, I'm not certain. It, it's, the, it's the artist pink? Okay. <laughs> Obviously, she has three older sisters, and uh, she's influenced. Now, Joshua is bipartisan, and that's what I love about jo Joshua. <laughs> Joshua is thankful for his brother Levi, for Hillary Clinton, for mom and dad, Beach, God, I'm glad God's in there, his Power Ranger suit, and I know he has a Power Ranger suit, and uh, for Donald Trump to be good and cats. So, and the last one I have, I don't even know if we have an image up there, it's uh, Stephen. Stephen is thankful for Jesus, that's good. His smoking hot wife, oh wait, that's me. Okay, that's, that's why it's not up there. It's right there, smoking hot wife. Uh, three unique kids, his granddaughters, uh, of course, Faye, who is dedicated today, and the one on the way, which is Jenny Ruth, Jenny Ruth Marshall. 
And then um, I'm thankful for my church. I'm thankful for my band of brothers because I have guys that hold me accountable and come alongside of me, call me, uh, do whatever's necessary to keep me in the right frame of mind, in the right place. And then my legacy of heroes. And those are all the older people in my life, my mom and dad, Virginia, and for the older saints that have paved the way for us to enjoy all that we enjoy right now. So are you grateful for these saints? Let's give a round of applause for our children. Now, before, before we dive into our passage today, I want to give you two ways in which you can express your thanks uh, to God. Obviously, God has set the example for all of us, hasn't he? We're told in 2 Corinthians 8, actually Pastor Adam will be expounding on this passage next week, but we're told this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So what God has done for us is he has set the example of expending himself for us so that we could have the riches of God's grace in our life. He's done everything to make it so that we can prosper as individuals. And so in light of what God has done for us, we want to do for other people. So on your way in, you receive two items. You receive these big cards and these small cards. And if you didn't receive them, there'll be some in the back or at the welcome table. But the big cards is about our uh, Christmas Eve service. Now, I want you to know we're doing something unique this year because of how the holidays fall. We are not going to have a Christmas morning service on Sunday morning. We want you to be with your family. We know that you open up gifts. And so Christmas Eve is going to be our weekly service. And we are planning that to be a very special time of some great music. The children are going to be singing. We're going to have a lot of neat things. And it will be outreach oriented because we want to invite people in. And our challenge is for you to, to give away all four of the cards you receive to coworkers, send them out at work, give them, a, if you have a, a, a counter that you can put them on at work, whatever you want to do, and we have more of these, but we want to invite you, invite your family members and friends to this. Now, keep, keep that in mind, but here's the second way. You've received gifted cards. Now, Adam will probably, will be encouraging you along the way in the next couple weeks to continue to think and pray about this. But what we want you to do is to show the generosity of Christ to somebody else. It says on one side, gifted, and on the back, it says, you have been gifted. Mission View Church wants to show Jesus' love to our com uh, community this season. And so what we're encouraging you to do is just bless people. Have fun with this. Put a few 20s in your wallet. Put these cards in there. And instead of just laying a $2 tip for your waitress, give her a $20 tip. And put this card down and let her know that she has been gifted. If you're in the Starbucks line uh, and the drive through buy the person behind you their, their uh, Starbucks. 
leave this card with the, per with the person at the window so they can give it to that person and let them know they've been gifted. If you see a military person, a police officer, a first responder, pay for their meal and then give this to the waitress and allow them to just say they've been gifted because we want to show the love of Christ. Also, on our website, there will be a place if there's a cool story that comes out of this, you can write your story and let us know. And we'll kind of let you know through Facebook what's happening with Gifted. But we have all a circle of responsibility of people that are in our lives that we want to show the love of Christ. Maybe your neighbors, you're going to bake, bake banana bread and deliver it to them all and give them a Gifted card. So we want you to think and pray about how you can be a part of this outreach this season. So today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. If you'll open your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be talking about, Paul is going to bring up the topic of repentance. Now that's not a word that everybody is familiar with, but we're going to hopefully understand what he's talking about by the end of our time. And so what you might be saying, well, well how does repentance and thankfulness go hand in hand. Well, they do because if you have an estranged relationship and there, it becomes, repentance comes a part of that relationship and then you are restored, you are thankful. You're thankful for that that has happened. And so we're going to be looking at this idea of thankfulness or repentance and I believe it produces thankfulness in our hearts. Let's pray that God would use his word right now. Lord, I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for how powerful your word is. And I pray that you would help each of us where we are in the station of life that we're at, that you would help us to understand your truth. Your truth is a light. It's a light to our path. Your truth is what unveils our eyes. Help us to see your grace. Help us to see your love and help us to see your truth. And so as we look at your word, I pray that you would help us to really understand what your word says to us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, in order for us to understand our passage today, I, you need to understand a little bit of context. And what you need to know is that Paul has had a bit of a tumultuous relationship with the Corinthian people. There was a place in the Bible called Corinth, and he had gone there originally to help plant the church. He'd shared Jesus Christ, and a group of believers gathered together, and they called themselves a church. And so in four letters, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we realize this tumultuous relationship. So I'm going to kind of, as a way of setting context, let you know what those four letters were. The first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we don't even have in writing. We just, he know, we know about it because he referred to it. And it was a letter where he confronted them on some sexual sins that were happening in the church. So Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. Now you got to understand, he couldn't Skype them. He couldn't just hop on a plane. He had to use the way of writing letters in order to communicate. So he writes this letter that we don't have, but we know that it was to confront this newborn church on some serious issues that were in the church. 
Now they had some questions, so they wrote a letter back to Paul, and they said, you know, we have some of these issues that we really want you to help us understand. And so they write back, and Paul then writes another letter. That letter we do have, it's called 1 Corinthians. And it's in your Bible, 1 Corinthians is a letter. Now he writes it to the Corinthians, and he's addressing some of the past issues, but believe it or not, more issues have come to the table. More issues such as division, lack of spiritual growth, church discipline, issues of believers taking one another to court, sexual sins, understanding marriage and divorce, Christian liberties. They were confused about spiritual gifts. They had questions about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One question after another, one issue after another. And the thing is that the Corinthians weren't exactly listening to everything that Paul said to do. But he had written the second letter to kind of address, the, address these issues. Word came to Paul that things were not getting better, so he dropped what he was doing. He went to the Corinthian church and he confronts them face to face and it didn't go well because he realized that there were some false teachers that had creeped into this church and they were starting to badmouth Paul and they were starting to say things and now we have a embroiled mess that's there and Paul leaves and then he writes a third letter that we do not have. It's known as the severe letter. It was a lot of harsh language that he had to give in terms of confrontation, harsh language. He had to be able to come alongside of them and say, okay, this is not right. And it's almost as if he was begging and pleading with them to understand. Now, we don't have this letter, but we do know it was a severe letter. We also know that as a result of this, 2 Corinthians said that he despaired even of life. There was a sense of depression that came on Paul after two to three years of confrontation and confrontation and confrontation and feeling like he's getting nowhere that he was frustrated. You see, I think Paul understood exactly what some of us go through because we have relationships where we feel like it's a tumultuous relationship. It feels like there's stress in that relationship. It can be a husband and a wife. It can be, uh, it could be in, uh, with, within our immediate family or it could be within the church. It can be within business. It can be in every sphere of our life where we have this strain of relationship and we just are waiting for a breakthrough. And that's exactly what Paul was waiting for. And finally it came. We're told today in our passage that the people repented. They turned from their previous way of thinking and they repented of their sins. And so 2 Corinthians is really a good book. It's the most positive of all the writings of Paul. 2 Corinthians is that reminder, is, is basically saying, okay, now let's get on the same page. There were still issues that they had to address. There were still issues of unity. There were still embers of, of, of problems that he wanted to put out, but it was a good book. But had the Corinthian believers not repented, 2 Corinthians would have taken on a whole different tone. 
So the passage that we're going to look at today is actually the portion that describes the turning of the Corinthian people. It describes what Paul went through. And so what we're going to do is we're, since sin was in the equation and that's what he was waiting for them to repent of, their sin, we're going to look at sin as a sickness. And so we're going to look at this in three parts. We're going to look at it in a hospital analogy. We have the waiting room, we have the surgery room, and we have the recovery room. And so we're going to look at the three phases that Paul worked through in his relationship. Now, before we get into the passage, let me ask you a question. Number one, do you have any relationships that are strained right now or maybe even destroyed? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think about it. Number two, what do you think is the key to this relationship being restored? Today's passage is going to address this. So in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 7, we enter into the waiting room. This past week, I went and visited somebody in the hospital who was having surgery. They had to come to the hospital about, they had to go to the hospital about two hours early. And in the waiting room, I got to say, that's the place where people get the jitters. That's the place where people are anxious because they know they're going to be cut into. And they realize that, okay, I just don't like waiting here. But you have to wait for the nurse to come get you so that they can prep you. And so in the waiting room, it's filled with uncertainty. It's filled with anticipation. And of course, it's filled with waiting. We hate to wait. How many of you are impatient people? I do want to see your hands. We have a room full of impatient people. We hate to wait. In verses 2 to 7, Paul is inviting us into the waiting room in regards to his relationship with the Corinthians. I think we find a commonality in this experience. Paul waited for others to turn from their wrong thinking to right thinking. Now, how often have we waited for an estranged friend or a relative or a spouse or a coworker, or maybe it might even be a child that needs to give their life to Christ? I don't know. But here's what you need to know about the waiting room. The waiting room is the place where you allow the Spirit of God to work. It is the place where you are patient and say, God, I commit this situation to you. I am waiting for you to work. This is a very difficult to play, place to be because we don't like to wait. But this is what Paul says about his waiting room. Verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our afflictions. I'm overflowing with joy. Now, as he invites us into his waiting room, his, the, here's what characterizes what happens when we wait. There's two things I see in what Paul is saying here. The first thing is that you have to have a clean conscience. You have to have a clean conscience in your own life in regards to your relationships. 
Paul had a clean conscience. When he says we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one, these are the very things that was, he was being accused of. And Paul's saying, no, 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 my conscience is clean. I, we have wronged nobody. We have not corrupted anybody. We haven't done, taken advantage of a single person. And so I want you to know that my conscience is clean. And from this, we extrapolate the idea that we have to have a clean conscience in our own life. But note this, false conclusions are a part of this waiting room. False conclusions that somebody has about you. They have made false conclusions about Paul. There are others that are going to make false conclusions about you. Here's the other thing that we see here. We see a persistent love in this waiting room. Paul loved these people even though he sensed all this tension. He still loved them. We see that he says, you are in my heart. He could not separate the fact that he had this close bond of relationship with these people. We relate with that because that's what we do. We get close with individuals. We want to stay close with them. And when that has been violated, it is so difficult. When he says here, he says the phrase, to die together and to live together, it was like Paul saying a marriage vow. And in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I'm not leaving you in terms of what I am persisting in my love for you. I'm not going to do that. I will persist in my love for you. But note here that when your heart is right, there's peace. There's joy. You see what he says? I am filled with comfort in all of our afflictions. It's not easy. This isn't a good time. This isn't a happy time. He says, in all of our afflictions, I, I have joy. I have joy. I'm comforted. I'm overflowing with joy. Because he knew that he was going to be persistent. I think the hardest thing in this situation for Paul and for us is that negative things are being said about us. But Paul is allowing his persistent and consistent love to break through the lies. That's hard in the waiting room. Now, but in this waiting room, in Paul's situation, we do have a turning point. And here's their turning. The Corinthians did turn, and this is what Paul said. And this is an awesome thing. He says in verse 5, When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. That was a place geographically. He was getting closer to where the Corinthians were. He went to this Macedonia, and he was actually looking for a guy named Titus. He says, Our body had no rest. We were afflicted every turn, fighting, out, uh, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us in the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. He told us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoice still more. This was the turning point. But Paul, in his description of this turning point, starts off with the negative saying, okay, when I was trying to seek out news about you, this is honestly that what was going on within me. I was filled with turmoil. There's kind of an equation that arises out of this where there's no rest, 
There's external afflictions. There's an internal wrestling, and it caused him to be downcast. In a sense, we see that Paul is wrestling with at least temporary depression, and maybe he had ongoing depression. It raises an issue of our world today. Do you know that over 15 million people in the United States, over 18, struggles with depression? This means that we need clinical help, we need spiritual help, and fortunately, Paul had somebody in his life to come and give him help. But also notice, you might say, Steve, didn't you just say that, didn't you just say that Paul had joy in the waiting room? Didn't you say he was comforted in the waiting room? But now you're saying that he has despair. It's true. You can have both. And you have as well. I call it the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde syndrome. Have you ever suffered from it? That one moment where you go to God and you say, this is so weighing on my heart and I cry out before God and, and you go before God and God gives you that comfort and it's good. And then you wake up the next day and guess what? It's back. You're in distress. You're in turmoil and you wrestle and you go back and forth. The apostle Paul was a human person. He wrestled with these kind of relationships. But here's the good news. The, in verse 6, it says, but God. This is what each of us are waiting for. It is the but God to arise in the situation that we find ourselves in. And let me tell you, in order for repentance, in order for restoration to take place, there has to be a but God. God has to intervene in some way. It says this, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And of course, Titus brought good news. Here's a couple points. First of all, God used a human being to bring comfort. There are times that God will use a counselor. There are times that God will use a pastor or a community group leader or a friend to come alongside of you and speak truth into your life. The Corinthians... Uh, or, or Paul had this in Titus. But we see that Titus brings a good message of three things. He says, first of all, that the Corinthians now long for you. There was a change of heart. They weren't putting you off anymore. They longed for you. They actually mourned for their mistakes, which shows that there was sorrow. And we'll talk about the key to true repentance, having sorrow, and the zeal for Paul. They had a zeal for him. This was music to Paul's ears. I can see him doing his little happy dance because, ooh, yeah, that relationship is, I feel like it's going in the right area, in the right way. It's the, good, good. And you've been there. I have as well. Where we just want it so bad. Church, are you in the waiting room? Are you in the waiting room? Is there somebody that you are in relationship with that you are in the waiting room that God would restore you? At the very end of the service, we're going to pray together. And I just want you to be open and vulnerable for us to be able to come alongside and just pray for your situation. Let's move to the surgery center. Now, surgery center is not an easy place because it's the place where we cut. 
But when we cut into the surgery center, when we cut in, we get out the disease and we're able to deal with the issue. And sometimes like there is gangrene that needs to be taken out and there is gangrene in relationships. There are things that corrupt the relationships and so there has to be this sense of surgery. And this is what Paul says and it's the most important three verses in this passage because it helps us understand what biblical repentance is. He says this, for even, verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letters, this is Paul saying to the Corinthians, he says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I felt bad, but I did not regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. The word salvation here is not a come to faith in Jesus as a new child of God. It's grow in maturity as a believer of God. He says uh, the grief for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It's interesting that he gives two types of, of grief here. One I would call a, a, a godly repentance and other it is a worldly regret. So let's understand the difference between the two of them. Let's understand godly repentance. See, godly repentance is where we hear truth, that truth convicts our heart, it brings a response of sorrow and it causes to a lead in change of action. See, that's what repentance is. The word repentance is, I was thinking one way, whether it was towards God or towards somebody else, and I was confronted with truth and I realized I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to go in a different direction with God or with my relationships. And so it's when we realize that we're going the wrong direction and it's me, the problem is me, and I have to deal with that issue. And so he says, this is what godly repentance is all about. It involves four things. Number one, truth. Paul's truth that he gave the Corinthians was in his writings. He wrote them truth about their actions. He confronted them about their sins of division. He confronted them about sexual sins, pride, careless actions towards weaker brothers. And they knew in their hearts that what Paul was saying was true. Truth is key in terms of our relationships. You cannot get to a place of repentance and, and restoration in your relationships unless there's truth there. We have to be able to speak the truth. But there is a modifier in the scriptures as to how we speak the truth. Ephesians 4.15 says we do it in love. In other words, we don't just clobber people with the truth. We don't just cram it down their throat and say, you did this and you did that. And this is how we're going to, this is not like a, some kind of TV reality a Big Brother episode where we just handle things the way we're going to handle things. No, no, truth is orderly. Truth is in love. And truth is what the word of God says. This is how I see you out of bounds, brother. Recently, I wrote to a friend 
there was a Facebook post and, and there was some, you know, the, my friend was just dropping one F-bomb after another. And I'm like, what, what is this? This isn't my brother. This isn't the person I know. And so I just simply said, brother, what's going on? What's happening? Sometimes we speak truth into people's lives and that truth is key. Now, truth leads to conviction. That's the second part of this equation. Now, what is conviction? Conviction is the place where truth collides with our pride. Truth collides with our pride. And you know what? What pride is, is I'm right. I want to do it my way. I'm not going to listen to you. So true, uh, pride is the place where we hold on to stupid. And so I see that all the time in marriage counseling where we have two individuals coming in and it's his problem, it's her problem. And they're just saying everybody, everything about their problem, but they never look at themselves and say, this is my problem. And pride is what holds on to stupid. And we do it all the time. Anybody ever hold on to stupid in this room? Yeah, we hold on to stupid all the time. We do it with our spouse and they look at you as if you're, they're saying, now, don't be holding on to stupid. What are you doing? And see, conviction is where we say, I surrender. Truth is, is on your side. Truth is on your side. And I realize that what you're saying is, is reality. And I just got to humble myself. And so when we have truth and it leads to conviction, it then brings us to a place of sorrow. See, sorrow is stated in this passage. Many times Paul says, you were grieved, you were grieved. But here's the key phrase. He said, you were grieved into repenting. In other words, they were at a place where they finally said, okay, I've sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against my family. I have sinned against my friends. It is the floodgate opening up saying, I recognize what I have done that is wrong. And in order for true repentance to take place, there has to be a willingness to deal with our own sin. And when we are willing to deal with our own sin, it brings about change. I was going this direction and now I'm gonna go this direction. You know what? Repentance is a hard thing because it does involve our pride. I can remember a time back that I feel like I sinned against a brother. I was the one that needed to repent. This was a long time ago. I felt like I had, this was my best friend and I allowed myself to grow distant from my best friend. And it took his wife getting cancer. It took some stupid things that I did for me to finally wise up. And not, not at first. At first, I thought it was his problem. And then I took time to be with God. And God used his word, and he started tapping on my heart saying, Marshall, this isn't an issue with your brother. This is an issue with you. This is an issue with you that I am trying to deal with. And so, and it's, it's painful for me to say this, but he did bring me to a place of sorrow. And I did have to go to my brother. I did have to go to my sister and have to say, I am so sorry for the pain that I have brought on to you. I am deeply grieved in my heart in what I've done. In this situation, it was sad because the wife eventually went home to be with the Lord. That's a good thing in the sense that she's with God. 
but it, it, it felt like there wasn't a complete restoration of relationship. And I blew it. I absolutely blew it. Because I just allowed sin to get in the way in my own life. But God's looking for humility. He's looking for godly sorrow in us. That's how it works. The opposite of the godly sorrow is a worldly regret. Do you know what the worldly regret is? It's the same process. It's the same process where truth is made known, but it has a different result. It's a person that says, oh, I've been caught. I've been caught, and okay, I admit that I've done this. Maybe because of guilt, they admit it to themselves. I don't know. But truth leads to this idea, I've been caught. But guess what? In being caught, there's no real admission of sin. And yes, there might be a grief like, oh, I'm sorry, this is an inconvenience. I'm sorry, this is going to destroy our relationship. But in the end, it doesn't bring a change. And you know what the difference is between the two equations? It is one deals with sin, the other one doesn't. And if we don't deal with the sin in our own life, we cannot have restoration. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so we have to look inward and we have to understand that we have to deal with that. This is the cheating spouse who finds every excuse in the book as to why their actions are justified. They blame their spouse for their, ina their inadequacies. They get others to take their side. They use their spouse's grief and their pain against them. And it hurts. It hurts. It's one brother that goes against his biological brother. He's hiding what's going on. They don't openly talk about. He hurls insults and the situation gets worse. And in all these situations, I can give you a dozen of them. We just don't deal with our sin. And as a result, there is no restoration. So here's my question. What characterizes you? Godly repentance or worldly regret? God wants godly repentance. There are some here that I'm speaking to that you don't even have a right relationship with God. The person that you're estranged from is God himself. God is only somebody you use his name when you are angry. You know that you are so distant from God you realize that God is simply a curse word to you. But in your heart, when you saw those children, you saw a creator that made that child. When you, saw the, when you see the creation around, you know that there's a creator out there that made this. And up till now, you have been stubborn in your pride. You have gone your own way. You have turned your back on God. And God is saying to you, I want to start with reconciliation with you spiritually man to God. And so he sent his intercessor, Jesus Christ, to make the way, to pave the way by dying on the cross so that we could have a restored relationship. See, when he went on the cross and he bled and died, he did it for your sins. And when he rose again, he proved that he was the only one in human history that would resurrect and he was the only one that was the God of the universe. And he was representing the God of the universe. And guess what? 
as soon as he died on the cross and rose again, he was able to grasp the hand of God and he's able to grasp your hand and he is able to bring the two together through the blood of Christ. Only thing it takes is for you to say, I believe in Christ. I surrender my will to his will. I give my life completely to him. I hope that's something that you've done because reconciliation with God is where it starts. Here's the final place. It's the recovery room. We'll conclude with this quickly. In the recovery room, there's some vital signs that you look for. The first vital sign is restoration. Take a look at verse 8. This is Paul describing his restored relationship with the Corinthians. He says, For see what the eager earnestness this grief, godly grief, has produced in you. It's produced in you. But also the eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in this manner. There's seven things that were signs of restoration. Number one, they were earnest or diligent to do what's right. He says we are earnest for this, to do what's right. That's what we do is when we realize we're wrong, we start to do what's right. Number two, we are eager to clear ourselves. In other words, clear ourselves from the sin that we previously were a part of. If you were in an adulterous relationship, you clear yourself of that. You get as far, as far away. This is what the Corinthians would be doing. They showed indignation. In other words, they became angry at sin. They had fear. They had a deep all of God. They had longing to do what was right. They had zeal and ambition to do what's right. They wanted to be proven innocence. In other words, they wanted to have a better track record. That was restoration, first vital sign. Second vital sign is unity. Verse 12, Paul says this, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. See, Paul's motive wasn't to put their sin in their face. His motive was to be restored. And the key phrase is an earnestness for us. That's what Paul had. An earnestness for us. Do you have an earnestness for us in the church, in your family? Is there an earnestness? This was a unity because more can happen when we stand united. Here's a third vital, vital sign is comfort and joy. Notice in these verses how many times comfort and joy is mentioned. Verse 13, we are comforted. And besides our uh, besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made of him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved to be true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul rejoiced. Titus rejoiced. The Corinthians rejoiced. Why? Because they were enjoying the healing benefits of true biblical repentance. As we close our service today, I want to ask two questions. 
And what I would like for you to do, I'm not going to ask anyone to come forward. I'm just going to ask if the first question and the second question applies to you, just stand up. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, but just think about this. And here's the first one. Are you waiting to be restored with somebody? If you're waiting to be restored with somebody, it might be a brother, it might be a sister, it might be a spouse, it might be somebody. If there is somebody that you are waiting to be restored to, could you just stand up where you're at? Just stand up where you're at. All over the auditorium, if you're waiting to be restored to somebody and you would love more than anything in your heart to be restored, just stand up. Now, as a gift to you, we want to pray for you. And so I'm just going to ask for those that are around you just to turn this into a house of prayer. Would you lay hands on the person? You may not know their situation, but would you just pray for your brother or sister in Christ? Just take a minute and let's turn this into a house of prayer. Somebody, let's surround people. If you need to get out of your seat, just surround that person. And I want you to pray for them. We have somebody in the back. If you guys would surround uh, the young lady in the back. Let's just take a moment to pray for those people. Dear God, dear God, do your work. Be an encouragement. that encouragement to the body. Feel the pain, the desperate need for restoration. God, we thank you. We thank you that we can do the work of just prayer right now. Lord, we live in a world that is so fractured. It's so fractured, and we hurt each other with our words. We hurt each other in ways that we shouldn't. We hurt each other with our actions. We violate trust in so many ways. God, would you do a supernatural work in each person that stood up? Would you do a work in their heart? If it's simply to give them the comfort that you're there, then so be it. But we would love, Lord, to see that individual that they are estranged from, that there would be a reuniting and that there would be restoration of some sort on some level in that relationship. We ask, Father, that you would do that work right now. We pray that in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I got one more question for you. And that is this. And this is meant to be an encouragement to those that are around. But if you could honestly say that you're praising God for someone with whom you've been restored, you feel like you've gone in a good direction and that there's maybe somebody in your life where you feel like you're making progress, that it's, it's going in the right direction. If you have a situation like that, would you stand up? Would you let people know that it is possible to be restored?
it is possible to go in that direction. Let's be encouraged with this. Good morning, Mission View. We have just a few announcements for you this morning before we head um, out into the commons for lunch. Um, first, we have a family skate night that is coming up on December 5th. Um, this is open to everybody. Um, it is at the North Canton Skate Center, and it's going to be from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, the cost is $5 per person or $10 per family. Um, we'll be doing skating, we'll be doing um, the rock wall, playing laser tag, bumper cars, all kinds of fun things. So make sure you mark your calendar for that. Um, it's going to be a good time for us to spend together. Ladies, um, we have a Christmas if table coming up. Some of you may remember back in July, we did a, a summer if table that was like a potluck at a park, and it was just one if table. We're gonna do the same thing for Christmas. So we will have one if table in December, and it'll be for all the ladies at our church. It's gonna be at the home of Tammy Eisen. Um, we will have more details about that coming to you this week. So keep an eye out for that. But for now, mark your calendars for December 15th. It's a Thursday night. And lastly, community groups, sadly, are over for the um, fall. However, they will be starting back up um, in the spring, or winter, I guess. Um, if you are not in a community group, but you would like to be, now is the time to sign up. So make sure you head over to our website and um, sign up for a community group. Now, what I'd like to do is pray for us before we head into our meal. Um, for those of you who may not know, we have a meal today. It's a very special Sunday. It's our celebration Sunday. It's going to be in the commons just down the hall. And you can go pick up your kids, and then we'll start lining up for the food um, at 1130. So pray with me now for our food. Father, thank you so much for everything you're doing Thank you for this day and just all that we have to be thankful for, for all of the children that were dedicated today and the parents who um, are willing to step forward and, and um, dedicate their lives to raising their children to know you. Lord, thank you for what we've learned from your word and for um, the opportunity we've had to worship you today. God, I just pray that you would um, just continue with what you're doing as we head into the commons and... Um, and eat together, pray that you would bless our fellowship and that you would bless this food to our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs> 